Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Live from the Connecticut Library Association Conference in Mystic, Go Nuts! Librarians are fun to hang out with. They have a lot of pent-up enthusiasm because you can't make as much noise as you want most of the time. So um, so they're having this tremendous uh, conference down here in Mystic, Connecticut, where they're coming up with all kinds of innovative ways uh, to run libraries. At minimum, I mean, I was just looking at the workshops you guys are going to. At minimum, any library represented here today will, in the coming weeks, start like a Tuesday night paintballs program or something like that, you know. Things to make libraries even more exciting than they already are. We're going to do the nose today. That's our weekly cultural roundtable. We're already live on the air. I know that's kind of a hard thing to believe. Uh, let me tell you who's here to talk to you today. Uh, sitting to my immediate right, Tom Breen is the film critic for the New Haven Independent and host of WNHH Radio's Deep Focus. I'm the only person who says it that way, but um, is it catching on at all? Is anybody else? With at least one person. One person. One Seems to be pretty person. popular. Yeah. Uh, Lucy Gelman, sitting next to Tom, is a reporter uh, for the New Haven Independent and the host of WNHH Radio's Kitchen Sink. We basically just got people from another radio station. Uh, <laughs> uh, but no, not entirely, because Kate Russian, uh, down at the end of the row there, is a teaching artist for the Connecticut Office of the Arts uh, and a Pushcart Prize-nominated poet. These are all experienced veterans of the nose. They are great. So one thing we've been watching this week on Hulu uh, is the adaptation of The Handmaid's Tale, um, of course, based on the Margaret Atwood novel. The Handmaid's Tale is a future scenario in which the remains of the United States have been supplanted by a Christian theocracy in which fertile women are reduced to reproductive crockpots for the ruling class, homosexuality is a capital crime, surveillance is total, and secular dissent is punishable in myriad ways. Or as Mike Pence calls it, my plan. Um, it's a little joke. Um, it's a little joke there. Um, it turns out you can't really joke about The Handmaid's Tale. People take it really seriously. I made a Handmaid's Tale joke on Twitter today and people got really mad at me. Uh, so no more joking. Um, so we're gonna talk a little bit about this. It's uh, uh, in the lead role. Uh, the handmaid in question is uh, incarnated by Elizabeth Moss, who you all love so much in Mad Men and other things. Um, and, well, I mean, first of all, um, and Lucy, I'll start with you. Okay. Um, you know, in a way, like I, I read this book when it came out decades ago, and it was pretty scary then. Somehow or other, this vision seems scarier now. Yeah. 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 It, I'll go with that. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's absolutely terrifying. The director of the series, uh, Reed Murano, if I'm not mistaken, does this beautiful job of showing sort of how a society distends into a dystopian, uh, I guess, kind of unreality. Um, and there are some very scary vignettes, and they're terrifying because they feel very much like 
things that probably all of us in this room have lived through uh, quite recently. And, and so one scene I know that we've discussed and maybe we'll discuss some more is a vignette when two women are in an apartment and there's kind of sun flooding through the windows and they're having their smash the racist patriarchy talk. And I thought, oh my God, I've had that talk. I've had that talk many times and I've had that talk over the past couple months. So, um, and so that, that we should say that moment is a flashback. That moment as we're, is a flashback. As we're watching these two women have that conversation, we already know that not only did they not smash the racist patriarchy. No, the racist patriarchy kind of smashed them and, and is keeping them down. Right. And so, and, and you know, um, Tom, I don't know, Margaret Atwood was, um, I was listening to her on a podcast talking about this, and she was talking about one of the things that she feels about this series is, and I think it's mapped out there even better than it is in the book, is that things can turn very fast, according to Margaret Atwood. One day you are sitting in your apartment having a conversation about how this can't possibly last much longer. No one around here has said that lately, I'm sure, but, and, and then it does and it gets worse. So this conversation seems particularly relevant this very day because, as we all know, yesterday the Republicans in the House of Representatives passed the uh, American Health Care Act, which, among other things, cuts Medicaid by $880 billion over the next 10 years, and it establishes pregnancy and uh, victimization by sexual assault as pre-existing conditions that insurance companies can then charge you more for. So this, you know, if we're talking about how The Handmaid's Tale describes the terror of a very kind of real, mundane, uh, familiar reality pivoting very suddenly into something that is completely unfamiliar, I think we need to look no further than, than what is happening just yesterday in order to recognize just the, the kind of getting hit by a truck impact of all of a sudden you feel like you're completely out of control. Um, I know that one of the topics we want to talk about around The Handmaid's Tale is, uh, is how does a series like this actually inspire, how does it actually act as a, a call to action versus just a, a confirmation of our fears and a, a, a kind of plea to our own collective angst at this moment. Um, and I think that what, just to broach that topic, I think uh, this as a, as a work of art has a slightly different uh, responsibility than a, a politician or a community organizer or a leader kind of getting on a stump and inspiring people to go out. This is about inspiring a certain level of empathy with the people in, with the characters in the story, with the environment created. We are not just saying, oh, we feel bad for, you know, Jimmy Kimmel because he is, you know, we like Jimmy Kimmel and we see that he's suffering because uh, of his, you know, his son's heart condition and he may be discriminated against because of this healthcare legislation, but rather uh, we are saying, oh my God, we could be off Fred, we could be off Gwen. You know, um, this, this is something that we put ourselves in as opposed to we observe and sympathize with from a distance. You know, they, they may not have known everything that you just told them. They've been at a conference. They were like, they were at a limbo contest last night. They weren't following this, you know. You, you may come out of here on Sunday and armored personnel carriers will take you back to your libraries, but um, hopefully not. So Kate, in a way, and just to build on what Tom's saying, in a way we're kind of not giving this piece of art a chance, we're already dumping all kinds of, uh, of sociopolitical reads on top of it. Maybe we should back up and just talk about how it works aesthetically as a piece of art in, in any day or age. What would your overall sense of it? Well, Handmaid's Tale on Hulu is very, very well made. It's, it's well acted, it's well written, high production values. And the director has done an amazing job of uh, building suspense and surprising us, a lot of, a lot of intense close-ups. One of the things I like about um, the Hulu version is that 
while all, the, all these horrible things are being witnessed and experienced by Alfred, our handmaid, uh, we get to hear her inner thoughts. Mm -hmm. And I think that works well in the film version to give a sense, well, there's a little bit of hope. On the other hand, it's so graphic, it's so intense, it's so well done, I really recommend the book. <laughs> Especially to a group of librarians. Suck up. Sucking up the librarians. That's true. Books are better. Now gird your psyches, especially <laughs> when you uh, see episode three. I, I, I like what she says, what Kate is saying, Lucy, about that. What happens here is that uh, in the, the handmade class, and there's another class, a servant class called the Martha class, they are expected, as is kind of almost everybody, to respond to all of the daily social cues with these formulated pieties. Yes. You know, these like things that you say, you say them in a certain tone of voice, and, and they sound pious, and, and, and what you hear the rest of the time is this inner unspoken monologue of a much more normal intonation, vocal intonation, talking and using coarse language to describe some of what's going on. And to me, that's one of the helpful things. I feel as though if I have a criticism of this work, it's that the director is so visually oriented. I mean, we were talking at lunch that she clearly just looked at a lot of Protestant Reformation paintings, you know, a lot of Vermeer, you know, to get ready for this. That at times the narrative piece of it, the first two episodes are, I think, are the pace of them. Some people may find a little bit slow, but maybe that's just me and my Ren, Ren and Stimpy mentality. No, no. I, I mean, I think the, the director is very, very visually oriented, but one thing that I think we need to talk about is that the director is also very orally or, oriented, A-U-R, uh, and not O-R. Um, but uh, anyway. Um, we don't know but, the director that well. Yeah, so, so no. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> But, um, but, but in the second, third, and fourth episodes, and I should say nothing beyond the fourth episode has been released yet by Hulu, um, there's the introduction of music and, and kind of bouncy, peppy music from the 1980s. And it totally um, makes this, I, I mean, you totally realize the dissonance that's going on. And I think it's, it's um, well done in that you kind of hate it while it's happening. Um, so, for instance, I think uh, on episode three or four, uh, Perpetual Motion is playing at the end of the episode, and it's very weird. Um, so I think, yes, visually oriented, but I think this is a director that's also thinking about where do I bring in sound, how do I balance sound, and, uh, and the, the beautiful soundtrack that's been composed for this versus uh, kind of songs that we are very, very familiar with. Just to jump in quickly off of what Lucy's saying, I, I think that among, so my, like the context with which I'm watching this is as a film critic, so I think a lot about different dystopian movies, and one of the banes of many film critics' existence is the voiceover narration, this idea that you need a character to constantly be explaining to the audience, independent of the images that are being shown to you, uh, what is going on and what that character is thinking. But I think that voiceover narration becomes a bit more complicated when you're adapting a work of literature like The Handmaid's Tale, because uh, obviously the, you know, what, something that draws you to The Handmaid's Tale is not just the story, not just the conceit, but the power of Atwood's language. And I think that the directors here quite deftly incorporate uh, through that voiceover narration Atwood's, um, her, the voice of 
kind of cataloging, the descriptive kind of cataloging nature of Offred's uh, existence. And that one way that she maintains her stability and her sanity, both in the book and in the TV series, is by looking at each room and describing every single thing in the room and then describing what each color reminds her of. I mean, there's this wonderful moment at the beginning of episode two when she's looking, I won't say exactly what's happening, but it's a traumatic moment. She's looking up at the ceiling and she sees a blue light and she, she starts riffing on the color blue. She says, tangled up in blue, blue oyster cult, my car was blue, it smelled of maple syrup, that was in the before time. And I think that to, to pull that in, it's not just a crutch, like voiceover narration often is used uh, as a way of saying, oh, we're not quite communicating this effectively enough. It's a way of letting us get a bit more interiority with the character, maintaining that connection with Atwood's prose, but also establishing a kind of parallel line to these stunning images that we're seeing um, as presented by uh, the director and the cinematographer. You know, it's funny when you're talking about comparing it to other apocalyptic stuff. I mean, I, there are times where I think of this version of Handmaid's Tale as Children of Men, the prequel. Sure. You know, it's sort of like Children of Men, this is before, you know, Children of Men is after this whole forced insemination thing stops even working, you know, and then it's just like nothing, basically. Um, but I, you know, Kate, in a way, one of the things that's interesting about this work, it's interesting about Atwood's work, it's interesting about this work, is that unlike an, a lot of, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I feel like it, unlike a lot of post-apocalyptic or apocalyptic scenarios, dystopian scenarios. This one seems so intimate. It seems so much about a set of feelings. You know, I mean, you just kind of know that for the most part, you know, Chris Pratt is not going to come bursting through a wall with some kind of, you know, light weapon and save everybody from this. That This is very much about people kind of working things out in a different way. Yes, it's it's very intimate film, and it's a lot about the. I haven't seen episode four, by the way. If that does happen, I'm really sorry. But anyway. <laughs> the, the friendships and the interrelationships, um, you know, college roommates, uh, mother, father, daughter, and it's very intimate in that way. And I think another uh, another aspect of the film that makes it very intimate for me is that it's now. This is not happening on Mars and the monster is not King Kong on Skull Island. It's, in one shot, you actually see a Prius, and in another confrontation between the paramilitary police and, and the, um, the, the protesters, I, look, I said, oh my goodness, that's uh, the Charles River. Oh, this is Cambridge, there's Memorial Drive. So I think that aspect of the film also added to the impact for me. So, Lucy, ordinarily on the nose, when James Hanley is here, we can depend on James for a somewhat cynical corporatist uh, take on everything. Um, <laughs> and so, but you see, so you're going to have to be James Hanley. Uh -oh. right? um, so my question is, I mean, I sort of looked up who owns Hulu. So one of the things that happens is because, I'm not going to say this is the first truly independently interesting thing that Hulu has ever done, but it might be. Um, and as a result, there's a lot of people who've never used Hulu before, me among them, figuring out our trial subscriptions and all this kind of stuff. And, um, and so it's obviously going to be a big boon for them. It's gone maybe a little bit more viral even than they could have anticipated. You know, to Tom's point yesterday, there was already a, a Handmaid's Tale meme or two being circulated around on Twitter as a very specific 
take on the health care bill and the women's uh, health part of it. Um, but, you know, I mean, Hulu is owned by, it's a joint venture of the Walt Disney Company uh, through Disney ABC Television, 20th, 21st Century Fox through Fox Entertainment Group, Comcast through NBC Universal, uh, and uh, Time Warner through Turner Broadcasting System. So a bunch of nonprofits with very humanist goals, I think, for society. Um, I have no reason not to trust them. Um, you know, there's, I always feel like to steal somebody else's title, we might be entertaining ourselves to death here. There's a way in which a bunch of companies are now monetizing our, oh, yeah. our anxiety. So, yes. yeah, just take that and do whatever you want. With <laughs> yeah, it. absolutely. I mean, Colin, we had this discussion around the Super Bowl when there were a lot of socially conscious Super Bowl ads put out um, by, among other things, massive beer conglomerates that are not doing nonprofits any favors. Um, so, yes, yeah, I think absolutely there are uh, large media corporations looking at this and saying, how do I monetize on anxiety? How do I monetize on, uh, on something that now feels timely when we didn't think it was going to feel timely? Absolutely. And, um, you know, part of me says that's, um, that's, that's how, how people are thinking. They're thinking about it in a, a capital, capitalist way. Um, does it get me down? Sure, if I think about it like that. Um, I, I think my bigger anxiety with this series is that uh, someone will watch it. So it, it has been um, called anti-Trump propaganda by some Trump supporters. But my anxiety watching this was, oh my gosh, this is going to uh, sort of fall past the wrong eyes or, or get into the wrong hands. Um, and be used as a template. <laughs> you mean like Mike Pence is watching this going, this is great. Yes. That <laughs> How is did they exactly do this? What I, yes. That is, yeah. Yeah, that Mike Pence is watching it and thinking, oh, now all we have to do is just take out Congress and yeah. blame it on ISIS. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I do not think that that is, is too far... Um, too far from... Uh, you need to see his aides. Find out how much those bonnets cost, all right? Cause <laughs> like, what if we needed 100 million of them? Yeah. Okay. Um, I think they're wearing them already in Indiana, some parts of Indiana. <laughs> but, but so this is kind of the ultimate Theodore Razak question. Like, who gets the last laugh here, right? Yeah. I, so I'm going to take a slightly more idealistic tack on this. And <laughs> um, that's... Uh, so on April 4th of this year, over 100 different art house and independent movie theaters around the country and really out in the world held this national screening day where they screened the 1984 movie version of... 1984, starring John Hurt, uh, and they held conversation. these owners of these independent movie theaters held conversations with local teachers, academics, lawyers, ACLU reps, they raised money for, um, you know, local nonprofits, and the idea was, you know, at this time of incredible kind of uncertainty and kind of top-down destabilization of the truth, how can we look to works of art uh, and these kind of major, you know, movies have, and TV have always, going back to the very beginning of the art form, are collaborations between commerce and art. So this is by no means the first time that we have to feel uncomfortable about these two kind of uh, bedfellows. But what I found, and what is getting me on this tack for Handmaid's Tale is that uh, to these, you know, I went to the, a screening at Madison Art Cinemas, and there were 250 people there. It was packed. There was a two-hour conversation after the movie. This is who gets the last laugh. When people show up and think about what's being represented in an artwork and then talk about how it relates to the reality in which we live, uh, what is this representation of a resistance and like how kind of silly and fatuous is it, and then how, how does it parallel with what we're trying to do? 
to, to fight back against political regimes we disagree with. That is the, the kind of the kernel and the power of art that we can't discount here. Yes, like Gulf and Western Company bought Paramount Pictures in the 1960s, but in the 1970s, Paramount Pictures brought us, you know, The Godfather and Rosemary's Baby and these, you know, these visual vocabularies that long outlive, I think, whatever commercial endeavors those corporations are looking to push upon us. So hopefully the art lives longer than... Yeah, hopefully you're right. Hopefully he's right, Kate. But this is, this is an old question. You're a poet. It goes back to Ovid and Nero, you know? I mean, you can try to make art that speaks truth to power and epite le bourgeoisie. And it's always kind of a question, though, like how far... Like, people can take this, I think, and either be radicalized by it or... Because I do think one of the powerful themes in this is resist, right? The, the notion of resisting is there resisting something that really seems unpalatable uh, and resisting at any cost is there. But I don't know, you know, I, 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 hope, I hope Tom's right. I don't know. Where are you? As a poet, well, where are you? On you know, I, I, ha I have to be hopeful as well. For one thing, the, the film is sending people to the book and sending people to the libraries and reading and conversations like this are being inspired and many, many more across the country and the world. And that's where the hope is for me, and that's where the hope always is for, for, for me in art that brings us back together and it gets us talking to each other and thinking. And I find hope from the fact that people are using images from the film as memes to make their own statements and to make their own connections with other people. All right, I think we should take a break. See, the producers, they always say, well, you have to look at us. You never look at us when we're on these remotes. I've been looking at you all. You don't do, you don't do anything. You're just sort of staring back at me. You know? I, want some, I want some guidance here. But I think we're going to take a break. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. We'll come back. You could probably get some cheesecake. But, like, you know, don't, you know, I mean, get it and just run back to your seats. Uh, all right. We're going to take a break. How about a hand for the panel so far? They need reinforcement. We'll be back right after this. Two seconds. Okay, okay, and we're back, live from Mystic and the Connecticut Library Association. Here they are. All we've given them so far is a very depressing conversation. And they're still applauding, so that's good. So maybe this will get more cheery, maybe it won't. We're going to go to the world of late-night comedy right now. It seems increasingly we go there because news is made there. So news kind of got made in two different ways you know, beyond the usual anyway, on uh, late night comedy. Um, and, and one of them was uh, Jimmy Kimmel. Jimmy Kimmel, who's, uh, well, actually, I'm, maybe I'll just let him quickly tell you. So, Wolfie, uh, this is B3, if you could just play that clip. You know, before 2014, if you were born with congenital heart disease, like my son was, there was a good chance you'd never be able to get health insurance because you had a pre-existing condition. You were born with a pre-existing condition. If your parents didn't have medical insurance, you might not live long enough to even get denied because of a pre-existing condition. If your baby is going to die, and it doesn't have to, it, it shouldn't matter how much money you make. I think that's something that, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat or something else, we all agree on that, right? I mean, we do. 
We need to take care of each other. I saw a lot of families there, and no parent should ever have to decide if they can afford to save their child's life. It, it just shouldn't happen. Not here. So, uh, anyway, thank you for listening. I promise I'm not going to cry for the rest of the show. <laughs> so, um, Kate, you know, in a lot of ways, Jimmy Kibble maybe isn't necessarily even among comedians, the person that we're expecting to hear some kind of bolt from the blue statement, uh, particularly about something as complex as uh, healthcare reform and healthcare in America. But maybe for that reason, it acquires a, a kind of power that it wouldn't have if a John Stewart or a, or a Stephen Colbert. No, you're hmm. tilting your head in a way that. I think if, if any of the three came out with a situation in a statement like that, it would have, it would have power. Hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I thought it was very touching, especially, you know, since I was not fond of uh, Jimmy Kimmel's performance at the Oscars. And it was good for me to be reminded, oh, yeah, these performers are, are real people facing real problems. Um, so but when I think about what, um, what Stephen Colbert said about the president, well, I'm, I'm not for name calling. Right. We're coming and, to that. And I, I don't think that helps, you know, if I'm going to compare it to, to a comedian. But I was quite moved by uh, Jimmy Kimmel's statement. I think it makes it the stakes of the health care um, uh, legislation very real to people to hear it come from him. You know, I mean, Tom, in some ways, one of the things I liked about this that it's a, something I've been thinking about more lately is I think as a nation, it's gotten worse and worse, but it, it didn't start last year or the year before. But we're increasingly better defined by what we're against than what we're for. We're, you know, and we're, I, this was made, a point was made in the Times yesterday, I, I think, too, that it's a really good day for us if the other side goes down in flames, as opposed to being a really good day for us if something that we believe in triumphs. Now, maybe it's because nothing we believe in ever triumphs, um, but you know, to hear it couched this way, and at least his invitation to both sides to join him in that sentiment, that seemed like a step in the right direction. Yeah, I, I, I think that what I found most uh, kind of affecting about Kimmel's opening monologue there is that, you know, so much of this, you know, debate over Obamacare and the uh, American Healthcare Act and Ryan Care and all the different, you know, names for these healthcare legislation, which are hundreds and thousands of pages long, is that the risk uh, is that um, with such a fast-paced news cycle, uh, we, uh, all of this is just rendered to be too abstract. Uh, you know, we think about about hundreds of billions of dollars moving from one bucket to another, and we think, okay, is this going to affect me? Is it not going to affect me? I hope that I fall somewhere in like the middle class bracket where I'm not too poor to be penalized or not too rich to be losing a lot of money. But so what Kimmel does here is that he he personalizes uh, this debate, right? He gives you a very specific example, and I'm sure every I mean that's the nature of health too. Everyone understands what it's like to to have bad health or to have a family member who has bad health. So it's not that this is too abstract a scenario, but you know, one to look at a comedian who you usually turn to to laugh and forget about your worries, to see him honestly crying. I think that is a bit of a jarring experience. And also to have him uh, kind of divulge something so personal, uh, I think helps us understand a bit more the consequences of you know, this wielding and dealing uh, in, in Washington. 
Although, Lucy, another way of talking, saying this is, this is kind of how the thing gets debated a lot of the time, right? There are congressional hearings about this, and they bring in people who have really heartrending stories of not being, you know, either they almost died, or they, somebody they loved died, or they couldn't get treatment for some treatable condition because, because of the way the economic structure of healthcare works. I mean, the difference is that they're not famous. I'm wondering, I mean, what's always, I feel like we've become a society where nobody explains anything, you know? Mm. <laughs> we just keep kicking our limbic tripwires over and over again, one way or another. Maybe ultimately this is a flash in the pan that doesn't matter. I don't know. I, I mean, I, I think time will tell. You know, one thing that's been going around social media is people just saying, these are now uh, the list of, of what's seen as a pre-existing condition. So folks maybe have seen that going around. And I think J Jimmy Kimmel was absolutely personalizing that when he had this monologue. So I think two things were going on, right? Um, emotion appeals to us because we are human beings. And, uh, and it kind of, our sensory systems, something goes off and all of a sudden you're crying in front of your television or your computer screen because Jimmy Kimmel is there crying about his small child. Um, but, but the other thing is that I think all of us in this room, and, and certainly um, I see a lot of women in this room, having a uterus is now pretty much a pre-existing condition. Um, and, and so I think all of us are trying to grapple with um, what is this uh, legislation going to mean for me? So I, um, I think time will tell, Colin, uh, you know, if this is just a flash in the pan. What I hope is that people do not move past it. I've seen people moving past news cycles because, as Tom said, they're going so quickly. You've got the 24-7 news cycle all the time. And I think sometimes journalists, even very good journalists, um, sort of reduce information in their attempt to deliver on deadline, which is a really real thing. So we'll switch gears from one late night comedy show to another. Um, Stephen Colbert, and I'm going to set this up a little bit. Actually, rather than set it up a little bit, there's a clip that I, I don't feel like I know you well enough to play for you. Uh, it's the clip that got him into trouble. So instead of that, we'll, we'll begin by playing Wolfie clip B2, uh, I'm Still the Host. This was uh, Stephen Colbert uh, on Wednesday night after a somewhat controversial Monday night. Welcome to The Late Show. I'm your host, Stephen Colbert. Still? Am I still the host? I'm still the host! Now, folks, if you saw my monologue on Monday, uh, you know that I was a little upset with Donald Trump for insulting a friend of mine. So, at the end of that monologue, I had a few choice insults for the president in return. I don't regret that. I believe he can take care of himself. I have jokes. He has the launch codes. So, <laughs> it's a fair fight. So, while I would do it again, I would change a few words that were cruder than they needed to be. Now, I'm not going to repeat the phrase, but I just want to say, for the record, life is short. And anyone who expresses their love for another person in their own way is, to me, an American hero. And I think we can all agree on that. I hope even the president and I can agree on that. Nothing else but that. Now, what occasion this was a Monday night monologue. And it, it's actually worth tracking down the entirety of the monologue because uh, it, it's a, a long soliloquy. And he begins, 
in the very kind of artful, adroit, almost surgical kind of style that we associate with Stephen Colbert, uh, and he is talking very, about the president, but kind of, you know, I mean, floating like a butterfly, stinging like a bee. And then towards the end, he brings up the fact that John Dickerson, a fellow CBS broadcaster, had been to visit President Trump in the White House, that President Trump had made fun of John Dickerson's show, which is called Face the Nation. President Trump said he called it Deface the Nation. Um, and then eventually, when, uh, when Dick Dickerson tried to press uh, Trump a little bit, you may have seen this clip uh, a little bit about the, the wiretapping allegations, Trump just cut the interview off, turned around, uh, and walked to his desk and sat down and just you know, indicated to Dickerson that he should leave. And so what Colbert did was, and I think people maybe, I don't think this was a particularly good idea, but I think people may have missed this aspect of it. He kind of changed his tone and he said, well, this is how we deal with it at the Tiffany Network, you know? And then he, he, he launched into a series of very hard and for the most part crude jokes, ending in an especially crude joke about the way in which Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump might express their affection for each other in a very physical way. Um, and that got him into trouble. And there was, uh, at, least, at least allegedly, a hashtag, fire Colbert Joe. It was suggested that he was using homophobic imagery uh, to get laughs. Um, and so, Kate, one thing you brought up, we email a lot as we get ready for the show, is you wondered whether this was kind of a real movement or, I mean, like how many people really were agitating for the end of Stephen Colbert over this joke. You know, I, I've listened to uh, insults uh, directed toward President Obama for years, eight years at least, and he was called all kinds of names and uh, won't go into all of that. But um, I was disappointed with Colbert, mm. and I don't think he should be fired. I don't think he should have to step down. But I think it also raises the larger question of not, I'll, I'll say what I want to because I can say what I want to, but what's going to be effective for communications and what's going to be, what's going to bring people together. Because when you call someone a name, you're, you're not just making an enemy, you're not just stereotyping that one person, you are also insulting their loved ones, their supporters, and on and on and on. And I'm really interested in communications talking. And I was very disappointed with the, the, the Dems for uh, taunting the Republicans uh, yesterday after the vote as well, because I see it all as part of the same, um, same dynamic. And I don't th think that turnabout is fair play. The, the corseting is what you're talking about. Well, I, though, here's what I was thinking also, Tom, which is that, you know, Colbert is Colbert, and people expect a certain kind of thing from him. And I think the joke he was, gonna, was making was, I'm going to break my normal level of civility. You know, I'm going to drop it down into the gutter. And this is what that sounds like. I mean, if, you know, if Anthony Jeselnik or Chris Rock or somebody did that material, we wouldn't think twice about it. Part of the joke that he was trying to make, I, don't, I think it was an ill-advised place to go, but I think that was the joke. Yeah, and I think we should remember that uh, an ill-advised joke is not the same as, you know, Bill O'Reilly racking up $13 million worth of sexual assault uh, charges over his two decades at, mm. at Fox. I mean, this is, I, I was also uh, offended by that joke, or I thought, uh, you know, I 
would wish that Colbert had not used those words. I think that shows like the Daily Show and the Colbert Report work so much better when they let the targets of their criticism hang themselves with their own rope. I mean, yeah. you play you play them talking, you, and then you kind of look at the screen and go, "Can you believe this idiot just said that?" So whenever whenever you jump in and, and offer, however uh, satirical, a a kind of sprint in that vein, I think you open yourself to liabilities. And and I saw you know as I'm and as someone who you may think, maybe an independent thinking person, I'm incredibly suggestible. And when I saw a, a tweet from a kind of journalistic hero of mine, Glenn Greenwald, say that, uh, you know, I guess now homophobia, when it's used to target, you know, people we disagree with is an okay use of homophobia, that really made me step back and think, okay, even though I agree with the, you know, the intent of Colbert's criticism, I don't think that he should have done this. But again, not the same as two decades worth of, you know, threatening to fire you if you don't have sex with me. Of, of Bill O'Reilly, so let's just keep that distinction in mind when we criticize our um, our talking heads. Right. I, I also, I saw that Glenn. I'm a big admirer of Glenn Greenwald as a journalist too. I saw that very same tweet. But what I thought was, well, he's a great journalist. He has no sense of humor whatsoever, mm. and he doesn't understand how <laughs> jokes work, you know. And so I'm, you know, that's not that. Although, but I, I love what Tom just said, Lucy, because I was listening to um, Trevor Noah be interviewed this week on a podcast, and they were asking him. Like, how, how do you deal with a situation where the reality is already the joke you would have made? Right. You know? And, and he said, well, yeah, he goes, escalation is what you do with comedy. Right? Like, you take something and you escalate it. Um, and he said, you can't do that now. And they see, the people interviewing him said, so what do you do? And he says, you dig deeper into the truth. Yeah, I mean, there's there's kind of this um, weird and unnerving intersection between uh, sort of dark comedy and just the facts, ma'am, journalism, if you think about it, or, or that's how I think about it. And I, I think I would agree with Kate that I was a little bit disappointed because I think it's so much more powerful when one lays the facts out there and says, this is really what's going on. You know, in, in journalism and with the New Haven Independent, and I know with WNPR, um, we talk about the importance of not editorializing in stories at all. And sometimes it's really, really hard um, because if you're a human, you probably have political opinions, uh, just guessing. But, um, but, you know, there is something that can be very, very powerful about laying the facts out there and saying, for instance, like I don't need to say at any point in stories about uh, the repeal of Obamacare, this bill will kill people because if you lay out all of the pre-existing conditions and what's going to be taken away, you know by finishing that article that this bill will kill people. And so, um, so I think that Colbert kind of um, did, he, he was doing something that was kind of beneath him. I, I would just like to say that the Trump um, so-called skinny budget zeroed out library services, and they would appreciate it if you would say that that would kill people. Because um, they don't want that to happen. It will, uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Actually, in even if that's not literally true, they no, would like well, to. No, well, it is true. So in New Haven, I'll say really quickly, in New Haven, our libraries are also our warming centers. So paring down library budgets will kill people. There you go. So um, we we have time for like a mini topic. Uh, and then we have to take, do we have time for a mini topic? Would you uh, sign off on that? So what I'm going to do, I just I had an, an inspiration. I'm going to give you a choice, and you'll decide by applause. We have an essay in The Atlantic about cl claiming that Americans smile too much and smile more than other people other peoples do and analyzing why that might be the case. That's choice one. Choice two is the end of the Bar Ringling Brothers and Barnum Bailey Surf Surface, uh, Circus. The circus is now 
de-circused. It's out of commission. So those are your two choices. We'll do it based on applause. How many people want to hear a discussion of the American Smile Too Much essay? How many people want to hear a discussion about the end of the circus? There were a few woos in that last one. Well, that's all we have time for, so thank you. But um, <laughs> thanks for voting anyway. So it was the circus, right? Did circus win? I think they should pick the circus. The circus. All right, so we're taking the circus. Hmm? All right, so then you have to start with the circus. Right, circus I is over. I actually went to the circus. I have a nostalgia gene. I never got to go to the circus as a kid. I wanted to see the elephants. The elephants are gone, but I said I'm going to the last show that was at the Excel Center in Hartford. The camels were amazing. The horses were beautiful. The dogs, the poodles were fun. The tigers was not having it. <laughs> and I, I know it's, it's about the animals. It's because the, the, the uh, elephants are no longer part of the circus. It's why they had to close. And I think it's interesting to talk about this circus, to think about that in the context of Handmaid's Tale, because we're talking about domination. And I guess the question I have, do we have the right as humans to dominate animals for our entertainment? Mm -hmm. And that's what I take away from the two subjects side by side. I just want to say, we no longer use a bull hook with the nose panelists at all. Um, <laughs> That came down from NPR. We're not allowed to do that anymore. So they are treated humanely, uh, and they have their room to roam, too. So, um, so wow, that was a Papulian through line. That was good, the Handmaid's Tale to the Circus. Well, yeah, so, I mean, part of this was the animals, they, they, you, the whole notion that it's not cool to use animals in this particular way. And then part of it is that people get entertained in other ways these days. <laughs> Yeah, I, so this I would strongly recommend this New York Times article that we all read about uh, the end of the Ringling Circus because it, it did a wonderful job kind of profiling a few of the key characters in the circus from the ringleader to the clown to the trapeze artist. Uh, and the ringleader said that you know one of the things that he so admired about the circus that he loved about it was that we sell miracles. And with the closing of the circus, you know the that people won't have as ready access to the type of miracles, to the flying and the spinning and the sticking your head in the tiger's mouth uh, that we had that the circus provided. And you know, um, I, if uh, if Kate has a nostalgia gene, I may have a nostalgia like reflex, <laughs> or I uh, uh, kind of I bristle at nostalgia a little bit. So whenever I feel nostalgia coming on, I immediately try to shake it off. But I, I think you know, one another topic that <laughs> we consider talking about were the removal of these uh, kind of confederate monuments from the south and the renaming of Calhoun College at Yale to Hopper College and this kind of grappling at universities around the country about, you know, how do we think about the naming conventions that are rooted in kind of slavery and inequality. And I think that the argument that I would use against Calhoun College is I'm going to kind of use against Ringling, maybe unfairly, but, you know, this, you know, culture changes. This was a wonderful form and maybe terrifying form and maybe abusive form of entertainment for a good century and a half, but I don't think that, I think we should remember what we loved about the circus, but also don't say we only can turn to the circus for miracles, right? Because um, I, I think that there is plenty of opportunity in the culture today to experience a kind of personal and collective miracles. We just have to maybe look in different places to, to find those. Trust right. me, they're selling a lot of merchandise, and it's very expensive. <laughs> so Lucy, uh, I've got a very stern one of those things from this, but you have time. 
Oh, I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay, okay with the circus closing. Um, <laughs> I, I went when I was a kid. Um, I actually, I had uh, an attack, like an allergic attack because there was so much smoke. And that is what <laughs> I remember about the circus. Uh, and it's, But I actually, I do think it was terribly cruel to the animals, so I'm okay with it closing. All right. So um, anything that I have to say, maybe I can incorporate into my endorsements or something on the other side of this. So we'll take a break, very quick break, uh, and we'll be back after this. Thank you so far, though. Yes, you can do that. You can do that thing. Okay, your handmade name is Off, plus your favorite cartoon character. So I'm Off Sylvester? Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants and me, Kyone Wolf, with our off-site special radio tactics team of Betsy Kaplan, Katie Talarski, and Jean Amatruda. Amanda Fish is now a Martha. The part of Bill Curry was played by Joseph Fines. On Monday's show, Adam Gopnik, the smartest journalist in America, shows up to talk about, well, everything. And now, back to Colin. All right, so we're going to uh, make a few little recommendations for you. Uh, this isn't for the audience uh, listening on the radio, but we can even maybe stick around after the show ends if people want to ask questions or hurl taunts at us. Or, uh, but right now, uh, the uh, panel is going to uh, make a few recommendations for you. So, Kate, do you want to get us started? All right. Well, I've been thinking about uh, freedom and expression. Uh, so this is the 100th anniversary of the birth of Ella Fitzgerald, the first lady of jazz. I've been listening to her, and she's incredible, and there's so much energy and freedom and genius in her music. It just makes me happy. Uh, also, i like to recommend the complete works of Pat Parker. Right. She was a, um, a working-class African-American poet, and she spoke out and worked for freedom and expression, so check her out. And then finally, the abolitionist Frederick Douglass, and he was also a women's rights advocate as well, and he's being honored on May 18th at Center Church in uh, Hartford. He's gonna have a, a courtyard uh, dedicated, and there's gonna be a plaque to commemorate his visit to Hartford. All right, I'm hearing fantastic things about him. He's doing really great these days. All right, so um, Lucy, what have you got? Yeah, so a, a couple weeks ago, there was an op-ed in the New York Times by Jessica Shattuck. I don't know if folks read it, but um, it was called, I Loved My Grandmother, But She Was a Nazi. I highly recommend it. It feels very, very timely. It sounds funny, um, but it, it does tie in with The Handmaid's Tale. Um, and it's, it is eff effective and affecting, or affecting and effective. And um, I, yeah, I recommend it. And it's, it's not long, so... All right, and the single is great too, very, very hummable. All right, go ahead. Uh, I want to endorse The Lost City of Z, which is James Gray's yeah. new movie adaptation of the 2009 book by a uh, New Yorker staff writer, I'm blinking on his name, but about, um, about an amateur explorer and cartographer named Percy Fawcett. Uh, who made six or seven trips to the Brazilian Amazon over the first quarter century of the, the 20th century. Uh, this is a movie that, you know, where it, it falls in a pretty familiar genre of white man traveling upriver in the forest to learn about the natives and about conquest and about himself. And you think of Apocalypse Now, about Aguirre, the Wrath of God. This is a movie that plays that adventure story very straight. 
there's relatively little insanity. There's no kind of Klaus Kinsey biting off someone's head. This is kind of like a, a David Lean movie, a Dr. Zhivago or Lawrence of Arabia, you're kind of these grand sweeping historical narratives. And as even though I, I think, you know, over two and a half hours that, that playing it straight uh, may, may be playing a bit bland, this movie has one of the most beautiful closing shots of any movie I've seen in the past five or six years. So it's worth waiting out the, the two, it's an incredible story, but worth waiting out the two hours and 20 minutes just for the last shot of Last City of Z because it is truly incredible. All right, I'm going to change my recommendation to make sure, whether you're not, not you, like, you like the circus, make sure you take children to see live things where the outcome is not guaranteed. When my son was growing up, I took him to see like the flying Karamazov brothers who are these incredibly witty jugglers who do these. It's, you know, things don't work sometimes and kids can be fed a diet of things that are all kind of pre-packaged and formatted. You basically know SpongeBob isn't going to die in this episode. So it, it is really good for them to see things where there's, you know, the outcome isn't known. I also, can I, I want to quickly say one other thing about the circus, which is as a young newspaper columnist, I used to visit with circus performers a lot because they're very interesting to talk to. They come here from other countries. You know, they often develop skills. So I was talking to these two Bulgarian women who were in the circus because their husbands were involved in one of those rupture-inducing things where you jump on the backs of moving horses that's going really fast, uh, which probably meant they had no children either. But, um, th but, um, they had developed a poodle and pigeon act. So the, the poodles would stand up on their hind leg, legs and the pigeons would land on the, on the front legs. And, and so I asked them, what's the hardest thing about tr this kind of training? And they conferred with one another in Bulgarian. And then they said, the hardest thing is to get the poodles to stop eating the pigeons. Um, <laughs> Which is what I would have guessed would be the hardest thing. I, probably, I thought there was some other subtlety that maybe I missed. Anyway, I would like you to give a big round of applause to Tom Breen, Lucy Gelman, Kate Russian. We're going to give a big round of applause to you. You're a great audience. We've been doing the nose here in Mystic, Connecticut at the Connecticut Library Association. They're going to go on and have lots and lots of fun dance contests. And they've got a bouncy castle. Um, we're going to go back to our drab lives, but it's a great thanks to my team, too, as well. Betsy Kaplan, Jonathan McNichol, Katie Delarski, Kyone Wolf is back in the mothership, and we'll be back on Monday. Talk about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon. Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah